Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, a distant exoplanet wags a comet-like tail made of its own atmosphere. So the numbers are, are a bit staggering here. Every second, we estimate that this planet is losing 200,000 tons of mass. And it's every second. And the oil sands are polluting in a way we didn't even know. The magnitude of emissions was actually very large, up to 6,300%, um, which is quite big. Plus, a gigantic prehistoric shark goes on a diet, pick up a pencil and do your brain some good, and investigating the aftermath of the largest underwater volcanic eruption ever recorded. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. There's a growing body of evidence suggesting that industry reports of emissions from Canada's oil sands are not telling the whole story. Last year, federal scientists used data from satellites and aircraft flying over Alberta's oil sands to conclude that carbon dioxide emissions were more than 65% higher than industry reported. And now in a new international collaboration, some of those same scientists use cutting-edge techniques to take stock of a different kind of carbon pollution. Large airborne organic carbon molecules. And this time, they found a much, much larger discrepancy with potential implications for human health. Dr. John Leggio was a senior author on both of these studies. He's a research scientist in the Air Quality Research Division at Environment and Climate Change Canada in Toronto. Hello, Dr. Leggio. Welcome back to Quirks and Quarks. Thanks for having me, Bob. Now, your previous studies were looking at the total amount of carbon dioxide from the oil sands. How was this study different from that? Right. So this is um, not at all related to uh, greenhouse gases. This is actually a measure of the total organic carbon. So there is a, a quite a bit of a difference between organic carbon and CO2. Um, organic carbon typically contains many more carbon atoms. CO2 is just one and has all the climate implications. Uh, organic carbon really is a, an air quality and, and ecosystem issue. So, so these organic pollutants, uh, are they basically gases from the oil sands similar to some of the molecules that contribute to smog in a big city? They are absolutely gases. Uh, we measured the total gas phase. Yes, everything. From, from two carbon atoms in a molecule all the way through to 25 carbon atoms. Well, I, I had the chance to actually visit the oil sands project a number of years ago, and, and one of the things I noticed when I was there was that the, the air has a, an odor to it, a smell. Is that what you were after? Uh, not uh, specifically, but these compounds that we were measuring are going to be contributing to that smell. That is that is for sure. Um, but we measure not only the ones that contribute to the smell, but probably hundreds of uh, almost a thousand other chemicals as well, which may not have any smell associated with them. Wow. Tell me about how you did your study. Uh, what uh, were you hoping to learn? 
Well, if we if we go backwards in time, in 2013, we, we did a similar study where we looked at particulate matter and downwind of these same facilities. Uh, and we found that there was quite a bit of particulate matter being formed, but we didn't have a sense as to where that was coming from. And it's that PM that, that generally is, is understood to have a human health and ecosystem impact. So that was the genesis of all of this. Well, tell me about the, uh, the aircraft and, and how you actually carried out the study. So the aircraft was, uh, is owned by the National Research Council of Canada, and we collaborate with them to um, instrument it, of course, um, with, with several million dollars worth of instrumentation. Um, and then we, um, we fly that aircraft around various surface and in-situ mining facilities in the oil sands region um, at various altitudes, of course, and we also fly downwind, uh, measuring hundreds to thousands of different organic chemicals and trying to do that as fast as possible, obviously, because you're flying very quickly. So typically we, we get a data point uh, once a second or even faster in some cases. And then we take that data and calculate an emission. So after your flights, what did you find? Well, uh, we measured the total organic carbon, uh, that being the sum of every single uh, carbon atom associated with organic compounds. And when we derive emissions from those measurements, we found that the magnitude of emissions was actually very large, and in fact, quite a bit larger than what is in industry reported to the, uh, to the Canadian inventories. What difference did you see? Up to 6,300%, um, compared to, which is quite big. 6,300%? Uh, <laughs> right, sounds big. Uh, and we also found that this discrepancy is made up mostly of, of molecules that contain uh, quite a few carbon atoms. So typically, volatile organic compounds may have 2 to 10 carbon atoms, but what we were looking at here um, was mostly molecules that contain 12 to more than 25 carbon atoms, and that makes up all of the difference, really. Boy, uh, where is uh, this, where's this stuff coming from? What part of the oil sands uh, process is, is giving off that kind of emission? Well, typically we fly around the entire facility and aren't really able to differentiate sub-facility uh, sub sources, but um, there are potentially many. There are stack emissions, there are tailings ponds, there are dried tailings areas within facilities, and there's a number of other uh, processes like upgrading and so on that happens on site. So it's very difficult to know which one. The likelihood is it's, it's, a, it's likely all of them to different degrees. So I'm just trying to get a sense of scale here. Uh, like, say, compared to all the other emissions in Canada, how do the oil sands fit in? Well, if you were to add up all of the various uh, reported organic carbon uh, emission sources in Canada, so things like the transportation sector, uh, mining, uh, solvent usage, and, and, and other uh, sources within Canada, the oil sands total carbon is roughly equivalent to the sum of everything else. Wow. Well, what do you think is behind such a huge difference in what you measured and what industry's been reporting? Well, because these large molecules, as I mentioned a moment ago, contribute the most, um, we know that those types of molecules are notoriously difficult to measure. They're difficult to quantify for a number of different reasons. So is this just a case of uh, they, they weren't being detected because the equipment wasn't there, but you had the state-of-the-art equipment on your aircraft that you could see them? Right, yeah, we, uh, we definitely flew a, a fancy aircraft with fancy instrumentation, and that's not something that's typically feasible. You're not going to be flying a, a plane uh, once a year with all the fancy instruments that we had. 
we uh, we had the benefit of the of the high tech complicated instruments to be able to see these things where industry typically wouldn't have that. Mm-hmm. So, what are your greatest concerns about all these pollutants that are being emitted by the oil sands project? Well, these chemicals um, are definitely precursors um, to particulate matter, and in fact, the large molecules that we're talking about here um, are especially good at making particulate matter. Um, the world knows particulate matter is a is of a health concern, and we also know that there's there's uh, not really a lower threshold. So, in other words, every decrease in PM exposure anywhere uh, can lead to to health benefit. PM is a is a health concern pretty well everywhere, including from wildfire smoke and, and other sources. Um, ozone is also going to be formed downwind as well as PM actually at the same time. Um, and, and that is definitely another pollutant that we know. So ozone and PM are both um, typically when it comes to the air quality world, consider the two main um, pollutants that have health impacts. So why is it important to get a true representation of the total carbon emissions from the oil sands? So what we measure um, in terms of emissions actually is one of the inputs that would go into a model, an hour model. So if you're not using the correct inputs to start with, you're not likely to get the right predictions of these air quality impacts. So our work here will be used to improve the emissions inputs that end up in these air quality models. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Bob. Dr. John Leggio is a research scientist in the Air Quality Research Division at Environment and Climate Change Canada in Toronto. Megalodon, probably the most famous and scariest shark and shark movie since Jaws. And why was Megalodon so scary? Simply, its size. It swum the oceans from about 20 million years ago until its extinction about 3.6 million years ago, and might have been the largest shark that ever existed. But new research suggests that Megalodon, while enormous, might not have been quite as husky as we thought. Philip Stearns, a Ph.D. candidate from the University of California, Riverside, worked with an international team on a new reconstruction of this monster predator. Mr. Stearns, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Hello, yes, thank you for having me on. What was the picture we had of Megalodon before your new reconstruction? More or less a larger, or I should say oversized version of the great white shark. Now, what kind of evidence was used to build that model? Yes, so you, you, you run into a bit of a wall here once you're trying to figure out what does Megalodon actually look like because since it is a shark and they're made of cartilage, so cartilage does not preserve very well in the fossil record. So a lot of large teeth found in the fossil record. You have some vertebras left behind, which is great, and there is one nice vertebral set that was preserved in Belgium. And then more recently, we just found placoid scales or the scales of Megalodon. So when you're limited to those three things, uh, it's hard to draw conclusions from what the shark actually looked like. However, what most scientists have done for a long period of time is they've compared the tooth shape of Megalodon to our modern sharks. And, well, hey, it's a big triangular tooth 
with serrations very similar in size and shape to a great white shark. So we assume that it must have a very similar diet, which evidence has not pointed to that. They did share a very similar diet, feeding on whales and seals. They probably look very similar since they're behaving and acting the same way in their respective environments. And, and how much bigger than a great white did they think it was? Well, that's, it's, again, there's various methods to actually estimate the size of megalodon. So it can go from just measuring the total height of the tooth. You can look at the tooth width, so the actual width of the teeth, and then using a vertebra to predict the size of the shark. So right now, the estimates that we have go from about 15 meters to 20 meters. So uh, yeah, very, a very big shark. Now, what made you reconsider this image of megalodon as just a really big white shark? You know, in the scientific community, there was a reconstruction that was proposed in the 1990s. It was 1996 exactly, where kind of just blew it up to a larger great white shark. But then more recently, in 2020, our best preserved vertebral column of megalodon, or the spine. And then they took the tooth set from another preserved megalodon specimen, and they actually put it into a scan of a great white shark. There was something that I noticed that really threw me off with the new 3D model. And I'm like, okay, that study from the 90s predicted that it should be 30 feet in length or 9.2 meters long. The new 3D model came out to about 11.1 meters long. I'm like, wait a second. So you're not accounting for the head or the tail. So I'm like, oh. Okay, so the core of your argument is that if the vertebral column suggests megalodon is actually longer then it probably had to be a little slimmer as well? Yes. Yeah, so the actual vertebra size and shape was the definitive factor because when you compare Megalodon's vertebra to a great white shark's vertebra, we noticed that it was actually thinner. So that was the big takeaway is that Meg's vertebra is thinner compared to a great white shark's vertebra. And the vertebra can predict the size and shape of sharks. So great white sharks are big and bulky because they have thicker vertebra. But megalodon's vertebra is actually thinner. So that was another clear factor that, okay, this probably can't sustain this big bulky body shape. Okay, wow. So it just keeps growing and growing and we got a scientific debate here. So what was the final version that you ended up with? Megalodon was probably more slender compared to what a great white shark would look like. Because when everyone sees a great white shark, it's this big, bulky, torpedo-shaped, you know, fearsome predator that we have today. The iconic poster shark of sharks. It could get even bigger than 20 meters, which, I mean, why, why not? Let's just keep getting bigger and bigger. I mean, oh, as if 20 meters wasn't terrifying enough to give you nightmares, let's just yeah. get even bigger than that. So, yeah, I, it's, uh, I, I, again, I, what it is, I don't know at this point, but I think this team that I'm on would all like to continue this investigation and see, okay, how big did it actually get? So what then does your new model of uh, an elongated megalodon tell us about its lifestyle, like when and what it ate? Fossil evidence we have uh, pretty clear is Megalodon did feed on whales and seals. So that's, you know, that's kind of what you would expect for a big uh, carnivorous shark. So definitely fed on them. And then the more recent uh, analysis or analyses have used what we call stable isotope analysis. That also indicates that Megalodon was a high-level predator in its respective ecosystem. So if you have a more elongated body, you're going to have a longer digestive canal, which is great. So a digestive system. And one thing sharks are notable for is having a very slow digestive system. So if you eat, you can actually extract more nutrients from that food and that you can use that to help, you know, maintain your metabolic rate. And another thing about megalodon, which has also been more or less confirmed recently, is that megalodon shows 
endothermia, in this case, warm bloodedness in its body. So really cool thing. So you also have to increase your metabolic rate just to maintain that. So you're depending on a lot of nutrients. So the question is, is how often would Megalodon have to eat to maintain that? Now, Megalodon was around for millions of years, uh, obviously very successful doing what it did. Uh, what does it say to you about why it might have gone extinct? Yes. Yeah, so that's, uh, I think that's another hot topic in Megalodon research is why did this supersized iconic shark go extinct 3.5 million years ago? It's a question I wonder a lot too. There were two major things that really stick out to me is one, there is a changing climate. The ocean temperatures were changing at that point. Okay. So things are definitely getting a little more difficult, you know, in the ocean life. And two, which was really interesting is, yes, the lovely great white shark that everyone, you know, glamours about and that we use to try to understand what Megalodon might look like appears in the fossil record right at the point when Megalodon starts to disappear. So what I'm starting to think is maybe this new competitor is coming in, you know, an adult great white shark might be competing with younger Megalodons for the same food source. They might both be trying to eat sea lions or seals. And then... Since you reach such gigantic sizes, Megalodon has to eat food to maintain its metabolic rate. But if the water is getting colder, to maintain your metabolic rate in that colder water, that's an added pressure. So I'm thinking if you have climate change going on, and then now you have a competitor that's going for the same food source as you, oh boy, that's going to make my life very difficult. So despite being this you know huge shark, a fearsome predator, unfortunately, the environmental change and now the emergence of a new predator probably caused it some significant issues. And I think that, at least my idea, that probably contributed to its demise back in the day. Wow. So maybe bigger isn't always better. I, unfortunately, I think that does happen sometimes. <laughs> and of course, the, uh, the, the sharks today have a new predator called humanity. Sadly, unfortunately, the, the people on two legs from the, the land are causing them the most issues. Yeah. Mr. Stearns, thank you so much for your time. Oh, yes. Happy to. Happy to talk about Megalodon. Philip Stearns is a Ph.D. candidate from the University of California, Riverside. Since the discovery of the first exoplanets in 1992, scientists have been hard at work searching for and studying these worlds outside of our solar system. Out of the more than 5,000 they've found so far, most are not at all like Earth. Many have strange extreme environments, like iron rain, titanium clouds, or winds that whip around faster than the speed of sound. Now a team from California has seen a Jupiter-sized exoplanet 160 light-years away with a massive 560,000-kilometer-long comet-like tail. Dakota Tyler is a Ph.D. candidate in astrophysics at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's part of the team behind the find. Mr. Tyler, welcome to our program. Hey, thanks for having me, Bob. It's great to be here. Tell me about this exoplanet. What's it like? Yeah, so WASP-69b is the name of the planet, and it's a hot Jupiter. So very unlike anything that we have in our solar system, it's about the size and about 30% the mass of Jupiter. But it orbits so closely to its star that it will whip around in just under four days. So this is very foreign to anything that we have here in our own solar system. Wow. So Jupiter-like, that means it's made mostly of gas? For sure. 
hydrogen and helium mostly with no discernible surface that you could ever land a spaceship on. <laughs> so what is it about WASP-69b that interests you? Yeah, so you mentioned that over the past 30 years, we've confirmed over five and a half thousand planets orbiting other stars. And one of the big findings, one of the revelations is that most sun-like stars have a planet that's a little bit larger than Earth or a little bit smaller than Neptune and on an orbit that's shorter than Mercury's in our own system. But we notice that there's hardly any planets in between those sizes. You get super-Earths, you get sub-Neptunes, but it's, it's very rare to find a planet that's in between there. And so you begin to think like, why is this happening? What's up with nature? That it's just refusing to make planets to kind of bridge that gap between the super-Earths and the sub-Neptunes. And one of the things that we know is going on is this process called photo evaporation. Basically, a star just bakes the atmosphere of a small planet and it loses it. It's, it's called atmospheric mass loss. And we want to really understand that process of mass loss to see why the distribution of planets is what it is. So studying a hot Jupiter gives us an opportunity to see that happening in real time. This planet mm -hmm. that's completely gas orbiting right next to its star it's getting bathed in radiation, and it's actually losing its atmosphere. Well, tell me then about this planet's tail. How did you spot it? What we did is we looked at this helium feature. You know, it's, it's, it's a gas giant, so it's mostly hydrogen and helium. And we tried to basically watch the transit in helium. If you, if you think about that, instead of looking in white light, we looked in uh, the wavelength of this helium feature. And we saw it transit, right? Which tells you that basically a ball of helium is moving in front of the star. But then we saw something interesting because after the planet left the disk of the star, we would expect not to see the helium anymore because the planet's not there. But we saw this extended helium absorption that lasted for the equivalent of 350,000 miles or 500,000 kilometers. And that's indicative of a long, wispy tail trailing the planet, not dissimilar to a comet. Wow. So so let's see if I've got this right. You say a transit. That's when a, a planet's going around a star and to our line of sight as we look at it, the planet passes in front of the star. That's how you know it's there. And so you not only saw the planet, but you saw this tail behind it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's a sort of a line of sight thing. So what's going on then to give this planet that kind of tail? Yeah, that's a good question because there's a lot of hot Jupiters that we see. Um, and we even see a lot of them losing some of their atmospheres, but it's relatively rare to see this actual tail be created. And the reason for that is because 3D models have shown that really the only way that you can get these long comet-like tails for planets like this is when you have an incredibly high stellar wind. So you may not think about it, but the sun itself actually has what's called the solar wind. Charged particles, actual material is coming off of the sun all the time. And the closer that you get to a star, the stronger that effect is. So it's, it's hard to gauge how strong stellar wind is for other stars because we can't measure it. But one of the ways that you can tell that there's a super strong stellar wind is actually by one of these gas giant planets that forms a tail. 
So how fast is this uh, gas being stripped off the planet? So the numbers are, are a bit staggering here. Every second, we estimate that this planet is losing 200,000 tons of mass in its atmosphere. So <laughs> per second. It's, and it's every second, right? Like okay. every single second. It's crazy. And you would think that like maybe is it going to get depleted? Like is the atmosphere going to get depleted? That's so much mass that it's losing. And that's just how massive the reservoir for these gas giants is. It is in like no risk at all whatsoever for ever having all of its atmosphere stripped, which is one of the reasons why it's interesting to look at because we can study this mass loss process before it ends abruptly, you know, with a with a stripped planet. Oh, I see. It's just that it's so big. It's got lots to spare. Exactly. Exactly. So what can this tell you then about how planets are formed around stars? It helps us understand exactly how the star itself causes the planet to evolve, particularly in its atmosphere, like how much radiation can a planet of a certain mass, a certain size take and still hold on to its atmosphere. And so we, what we can try to do is we can, we can study this process and, and get good data and understand this mechanism that's happening and then try to extrapolate that to these smaller planets that we can't observe in the same way. Have you found any other planets with tails? There, there are a handful of other planets that do have them. But what was really interesting about this planet was that it had been observed by a couple of other groups of astronomers. And one of them detected a very modest tail and another group didn't detect any tail at all. So when we looked, it was a bit surprising to find this tail that was nearly eight times the length of the planet. It was really a big surprise. Must have been a windy day on that star. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you want to talk about the winds. The The winds in that tail are actually being accelerated to somewhere around 50,000 miles per hour. Uh, it's about 10,000 degrees Kelvin as well. So it's, I mean, yeah, that's an understatement. It's definitely <laughs> an extreme environment. Hmm. Mr. Tyler, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. Dakota Tyler is a Ph.D. candidate in astrophysics at the University of California, Los Angeles. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Paydirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the program, scientists look back on the most powerful underwater volcano ever recorded. It was so powerful, you can actually see it from satellites, you can actually see it radiating around the world. And we know from the weather stations that that blast wave was so powerful, it actually went around the world three times. Which is mightier, the pen or the iPad? In recent decades, computers have become a bigger and bigger part of education, and that makes sense. 
it should help make students more tech literate and better equip them for their future. But it has meant that one of the three R's has been increasingly neglected. Reading and arithmetic are still on the curriculum, but writing, handwriting at least, is getting short shrift. In Canada, only some of the provinces mandate teaching cursive handwriting, and many schools have stopped teaching it altogether. But did we lose anything important when we put down the pencil? Neuroscientist Dr. Audrey Vandermeer feels strongly that we have, and has evidence to back it up. She's found writing helps wire the brain in a way keyboards and touchpads just don't do. She's the director of the Developmental Neuroscience Laboratory at NTNU Trondheim in Norway. Hello and welcome to our program. Thank you. How did you go about studying writing and its effect on the brain? Well, we have these um, electrode nets that consist of 256 sensitive sensors that are sewn together and that we place on a participant's head uh, and then we can record electrical brain activity while the participant carries out tasks of a different nature. And who were the subjects that you had where this uh, EEG device? Well, we have nets in all sizes, uh, from young babies to, to adults. But the subjects that we used for the, the handwriting versus typewriting study were students between 19 and 29 years of age. And what did you have them do? We had them write words by hand that were visually given or uh, typewrite the same words using a keyboard. So what differences in their brain activity did you see when you compared typing to writing? Well, we were amazed to find <laughs> that the brain is completely active in a different way when we write using our hand versus when we type using a keyboard. And the, the differences were so large, we weren't expecting to find these kind of differences, but they were very prominent and clear in all the participants that we tested. So uh, what parts of the brain were lighting up in each case? When writing by hand, you use your fine motor skills, carefully controlling the fingers and your hand to form letters on, on paper. Therefore, you, you use your body to a much larger extent than when you type on the keyboard, because in order to produce letters on the keyboard, you make the same simple movements to produce any type of letter. So um, you also use your senses to a much greater extent because you have to, to grip the pen and form the letters and you watch the, the letters appear as you move your hand. So what we found was that the visual cortex in the back of the head, the parietal parts of the brain where the senses are located, but also the top of the head where the motor cortex is located, they were much more active than typing on a keyboard. Oh, I see. So writing is almost like drawing. You're, you're having to form letters, different letters all the way along, whereas a keyboard, one key looks the same as another. Your fingers are just dancing around. Yes, exactly. Uh, writing, we found that, is very much similar, has the same underlying processes in the brain as drawing. So how much more active was the brain when writing compared to typing? 
a lot more active. We saw neural networks active all across the brain, and, but especially in the visual and the, the sensory and motor areas. Uh, and compared to typewriting, we hardly saw any uh, neural networks. Wow. So what might all this activity in the brain when writing mean for learning and memory? These, these kind of networks, they help uh, in the formation of, of memories and also they set the brain in a kind of state that makes it easier to, for the brain to learn and, and remember incoming information. Now, does it matter if uh, the students were printing or if they were actually writing? So it shouldn't matter whether you're printing or actually writing in cursive. It's the, the movement of the hand and the, the greater use of the senses that makes all the difference for the brain. <laughs> I, I'm just wondering, does it matter if your writing is really bad? Because my writing is so bad, when I write something down, I can't even read my own writing again. <laughs> Yes, that, that is a, a thing. And now that young children are spending more and more time on an iPad and are not coloring anymore, they're not uh, laying puzzles anymore, and they're not training their fine motor skills before they start school, it is especially difficult for teachers who complain that they're, the six-year-olds that, that start school, they hardly know how to hold a pen anymore. Well, how important is that uh, age? You, you tested students who are basically adults, but what about this effect on younger people? So uh, children, young children, should be given the opportunity to, to learn how to write by hand, and they should receive a minimum of uh, handwriting tuition because simply because it's so good for their brains, but also because, you know, Handwriting is kind of part of our cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. And uh, we want the next generation to be able to write a love letter by hand or at least a grocery list. I think it's important to, <laughs> to maintain these kind of qualities. So when you say it's, it helps with brain development, are you saying that handwriting is actually part of wiring the brain, a young brain? Yes, I, I think you could say that. But also for the older brain, uh, that is one of the things we want to study next, is to see if older people, when they maintain handwriting practice, if they can fend off cognitive decline. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's one other effect. Uh, on the rare occasion when a handwritten letter shows up in my mailbox, that's the first one I open because it's more interesting to read because you're actually looking at the hand of the person who did it. Exactly, yes. And before, not so long ago, it, it was kind of a status symbol how nice your handwriting is. <laughs> Dr. Vandermeer, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Dr. Audrey Vandermeer is a professor of neuropsychology at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. ago, a record-breaking blast swept the world several times over, as it turns out. 
It was the most powerful underwater volcano ever recorded, not too far from the tiny island nation of Tonga in the southwest Pacific. The eruption happened in the Ring of Fire, a string of volcanoes around the edge of the Pacific Ocean. Before the eruption, that area was one of the least studied regions in the world. That, of course, has changed since the blast of 2022, as researchers have delved deep to understand this titanic explosion. And they were aided by the fact that, by sheer luck, they had a before picture they could compare it to. Kevin Mackay is a marine geologist with the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research in Wellington, New Zealand. He's helped study the after-effects of this volcanic eruption up close as leader of the Tonga Eruption Seabed Mapping Project Research Voyages. Hello and welcome to our program. Thank you very much. Um, I'm pleased to be here. Now, first of all, tell me about this before picture of the volcano that you got. Where did it come from? First of all, you have to really understand that as a species, we know very little about what the seafloor actually looks like. It's, it's a sad fact that we know more about the surface of Mars, the Moon, even Pluto, than what we know, literally what's under the water off our back step. So actually to have a before map of anything under the water is incredibly unusual. But this story, I think, is quite amusing. It's There was a, an American research vessel that had some equipment failure, and it was waiting to come into port in Tonga to basically use up time, it decided while it was here, it will just happen to map a nearby underwater mountain just because it can. And, and if it wasn't for that serendipitous moment where we acquired this data, uh, we wouldn't have a before picture of what this volcano looks like. So what kind of image did it take? What, what did the volcano look like? It's two and a half kilometres high. It's about 30 kilometres across. It would be very impressive if you saw it on land. But underwater, it's just one of many tens of thousands of very similar features underwater. It just has a very flat top and a slight crater on the summit. That's what the before picture looked like. Mm. Now, it, it, it has two little islands. So imagine a crater and the little peaks on the rim of the crater actually poked up above the water. And these created two little islands. And those two little islands are still there today, despite this massively violent eruption. They're still intact. They're dramatically reduced in size compared to what they were before, but it just defies belief and defied the imagination and defied conventional science understanding about how volcanoes work, that these are still there. Now, take me back now to that day in 2022 when the volcano erupted. You're in New Zealand, right, about 2,000 kilometers from the volcano. So what was it like for you? I was mowing my lawns because it was about six o'clock uh, summer evening, so it's, it's a long time of daylight, and I was mowing my lawns, and I heard what I thought was artillery fire, which isn't that unusual because there's a gun battery just down the road in the capital city that fires 21-gun salutes, and that's what, exactly what it sounded like, someone firing a 21-gun salute. And I thought, well, that's odd because it's not the Queen's birthday or anything special about it. And it wasn't until I went to the media and then realised what I'd actually heard was the sonic boom of this massive explosion. And it was audible for me, 2,000 kilometres away, you, you rightly pointed out. And it actually turned out that the wind of the volcano went boom. It actually produced the largest sound ever recorded in human existence. I mean, it was truly amazing. So how far away was the sound of the eruption heard or felt? Yeah, so the sound itself, put that into context, the largest bang, and in fact, you can Google it right now, you say the largest sound... And it was still probably likely to say Mount Krakatoa in 1883. 
And that was heard in Darwin, about 2,500 kilometres away, in 1883. This bang was heard audibly in Alaska, 11,000 kilometres away. That, that's just insane. Wow. And the bang itself is actually a blast wave. So if you ever watch an explosion on video and you actually see that pressure wave really expanding about a thousand kilometers away, that is the sound wave. It's traveling at speed of sound, but it was so powerful. You can actually see it from satellites. You can actually see it radiating around the world. And we know from the weather stations that that blast wave was so powerful, it actually went around the world three times. It just kept going around the world and around the world three times. Wow. And that blast wave, which again is that bang, was so powerful, it literally moved clouds above the United Kingdom on the other side of the planet. Holy it just God. defies belief about the power of that explosion. Wow. What was it like for the people of Tonga, who were even closer to it? They were completely freaked out, to be honest. To be honest. The way it was happening at a very local level is they heard four or five bangs and actually there's some great video that you can watch on YouTube where they heard these bangs and it literally were a bang and, they, and a lot of people went down to the beach and started filming with their phones. When the big bang happened that really almost literally knocked their socks off. They basically fled to the hills because they knew there was a volcano just over the horizon and they knew that there was a risk that this big bang could generate a tsunami. They didn't wait for an official evacuation notice. They just head to the hills. So when the tsunamis did arrive because of that bang, it generated a very large tsunami. In actual fact, yes, it devastated a lot of houses and homes. Three people lost their lives. But that number could have been a lot higher if the Tongan people hadn't been so attuned to the risks that these volcanoes pose in their backyard. Wow. So once uh, you started uh, to investigate this, what were you hoping to figure out by actually going to the site? So our original assumption was this volcano erupted like a terrestrial volcano. So when a volcano blows up like Mount St. Helens and Mount Vesuvius, you know, it literally shatters itself. So when we were mapping this mountain after the eruption, we were expecting to see a shattered mountain that had the top had blown away and a large part of the mountain had gone. And the first thing that we saw, which surprised us amazingly was the mountain still intact it still looks like a beautiful conical mountain the difference is now it has a massive hole in the very very top whereas before it was a flat top now there's a massive hole four kilometers across and nearly a kilometer deep and it wow. beggars belief and it beggars the imagination how such a violent eruption can create such a large hole but leave the mountainside itself completely intact Okay, so the mountain itself was still intact. It's still a cone, yeah. just with a big hole down the center. What about the surrounding area? We, we were expecting to see ash that has come from the atmosphere and settling gently on top of coral reefs. That's what we were expecting when we put the cameras down. Instead, when we put the cameras down, we just saw devastation. I can't explain it any more to saying just kilometer after kilometer of just jagged rocks, covered in mud and sand, not a bit of life to be seen. You know, this is the tropics. This is the most biologically productive part of the planet. And we were just seeing hour after hour, kilometre after kilometre of zero life. 
Wow. All life was extinguished down even to the bacteria level. What was there before, completely gone. Wow. Uh, how long did the eruption itself last? So the eruption itself was amazing. Uh, a thousand seconds. A thousand seconds. Uh, I, I just did a little quick calculation here. That's about 16 minutes? Yeah. Wow. That's ridiculous. How much actual material came out of the volcano? We estimate about six cubic kilometers. That's a vast amount of material. When Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, that was about one cubic kilometer of material. This was six that went to the atmosphere. But what happened is when that material got blasted in the atmosphere, and then what goes up must come down, so that six cubic kilometers then came crashing back to the surface through the water onto the seafloor, it then removed another four cubic kilometres of material. So suddenly you now have 10 cubic kilometres of material mobilised. And because it was almost frictionless, because it's so hot and probably had steamed and trained in it as it moved through the water, it just flowed for hundreds of kilometres and it just smothered the ocean for in every direction. Wow. So the seafloor got hit twice by material falling down the sides of the mountain underwater and then the stuff that was shot up into the air that came back down onto the surface of the ocean. That's correct. And, and we can actually see that on the seafloor. Now we understand the process. When I look at my map that we acquired now and compare it to the before map, you can actually clearly see multiple flows of these avalanches as they came down different sectors. How high into the atmosphere did the eruption go? The eruption itself broke so many records about our understanding about science. When a very large volcano erupts, and we're talking about very large volcanoes, they usually have clouds that go up to about 25 kilometres high. Because what happens is you have material that gets ejected up, and at 25 kilometres, it's the bottom of the stratosphere. And when the ash hits the bottom of the stratosphere, the jet stream streaks that material away and, and kind of wraps it around the world. This particular eruption was so powerful. Oh, holy moly. Whoa. NASA actually detected the cloud rising to 57 kilometers high. That's twice as high as the previous known limit of a volcanic eruption. That meant that it had so much power and so much velocity going forward, it punched through the jet stream of the stratosphere and it pushed ash and basically salt water into the mesosphere. And here's a really cool fact that, we, again, we didn't know about it until we looked at the results from NASA. NASA detected Pacific Ocean water in outer space. Wow. No one even thought it was even possible to do because of gravity. But that just shows how much power there was in that explosion. So what do you know now about what triggered such a massive explosion of this Tonga volcano? In New Zealand, we're a volcanic country ourselves, and we have 28 active volcanoes underwater. We're, we're actually part of the same volcanic chain as Tonga, and we can now look at our after picture of this mountain with a big hole and go, jolly, gee whiz, I can see the same volcano here, 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 here. So these things have happened before, and they're likely to be more common than we think. But the mechanism that caused it to go so special, we think, is actually quite unique. This sort of eruption will never happen on land. The atmosphere, air, is, is not dense enough to create that level of explosion. So this explosion can only happen in an underwater setting. And, and that's because when water meets magma, it instantaneously turns to steam. And water will turn to steam, and, and the steam will be a thousand times the volume of what it was in water. So instantaneously, you have 
cubic kilometres of ocean water hitting a magma chamber that flashes it instantaneously a thousand times its volume. That's the bang. You need to be underwater. But I call this particular eruption sort of like a Goldilocks eruption. If the volcano had been any shallower, there would not be enough volume of salt water to create that level of explosion. But if the volcano being any deeper, then the water pressure will be too great to let that explosion happen. The water pressure would have suppressed that explosion. So it just happened to be just the right point, about 150 metres deep, to create that bang. Boy, so it was a steam explosion, basically, that, that gave it the violence. But what was the original trigger? What actually has happened is that the volcano was there and there was a pool of magma in the magma chamber that had been sitting there for about five years. And then a fresh pulse of magma, which we call volatile rich magma, was pushed into the magma chamber. And this volatile rich magma effectively shaking a champagne bottle. That's effectively what it did. And it created a lot of gas out of solution into gas bubbles. And that's what drove that explosion. And what actually happened is there was an explosion that removed part of the lid of the magma chamber that let a little bit more water in that exploded, that released a bit more of the roof of the magma chamber that let more water in. And it got into this chain reaction that each little eruption let a little bit more water in and eventually the whole magma chamber was exposed to all the seawater. And that was the bang. Wow. <laughs> that big hole that you saw looking down into the top of the crater, to the top of the cone, is just like a big funnel that allowed the water to come in and everything blew back up again. That's right. And actually, you know, you have an explosion. Pressure radiates in every direction. So why didn't the volcano blow itself up? And that's one of the big questions we still want to understand. And, and my theory is that actually water pressure which is very strong water pressure, it's much stronger than atmospheric pressure, effectively braced the sides of the volcano and it stopped any explosive power from going out sideways. So it forced all the explosive power to go straight up in the air. And my analogy is it's effectively a shotgun blast directly into the sky. And that's why it went so high, it's not went so fast, because that power of that explosion was not allowed to go sideways because it was an underwater volcano and the water pressure alone was strong enough to hold the volcano sides intact. Boy, I'm also thinking of putting menthols in a bottle of Coke and it <laughs> goes straight up. Well, right? that's a perfect analogy. I love that. I might borrow that if you don't mind. Oh, okay. You could use that. <laughs> so the lid, which is the roof of the magma chamber, couldn't contain it anymore and it went bang. That's exactly what happened. I love that analogy. <laughs> Now, you mentioned that uh, you know this eruption was part of a chain of volcanoes, underwater volcanoes, that run along the Pacific Ring of Fire. So does studying this eruption give you any insight into how you may be able to predict eruptions like this in the future? Well, it does, because before this eruption, we didn't even know the style of eruption could even exist. It wasn't in any textbook. It wasn't in any risk management plan. Now that it's happened, what's happening now around the Pacific Rim of Fire, Tonga, New Zealand, uh, Japan, Philippines, Indonesia, they're now reassessing these underwater volcanoes that are close to population centres and actually realising that we can build it into our risk models in terms of what needs to happen to protect our population. Now it actually is folding into national management plans for risk mitigation. Mm. 
Now, this was indeed a very big volcano with a lot of local destruction that you've been describing here, but it didn't have the kind of global impact that a volcano like Krakatoa has, spreading around the world, changing the climate of the planet for a year or two. Don't you believe that? This volcano has changed the climate, and right now the climate is still changed because of that. Krakatoa itself wasn't an underwater volcano. It went bang when it was still an island. So the mechanism isn't quite the same. When you have a a volcano that erupts above the water, there's a lot of ash that goes into the atmosphere. It's literally bits of shards of glass and rock that float just below the stratosphere. And and that is a material that creates a barrier that stops solar radiation from hitting the surface of the Earth. And that creates global cooling. Now, we saw this in Krakatoa. We saw this immeasurably in the Mount Punatubo eruption in 1991. And we know through other volcanic records that these eruptions have caused many ice ages, especially noted in in Europe, that volcanic eruptions can lead to global cooling because of the ash actually blocking sunlight. Now, this particular volcano, because it was on water, what was pushed into the cloud, into the atmosphere, was mainly steam, not ash. And H2O steam is actually the strongest greenhouse gas there is stronger than methane, stronger than carbon dioxide. So what it has done is actually has heated the planet. It actually has increased the greenhouse effect because there was so much water, not just in the atmosphere. Remember I said this got pushed into the mesosphere. So there's something like 60, there's 60 million Olympic-sized swimming pools of Pacific Ocean water still in the stratosphere right now circulating Holy in the world. Wow. Because it, it's in the stratosphere. It's not coming down as rain. It's not in the troposphere. It's in the stratosphere. And that not only has it created a greenhouse of gas, but because it's in the stratosphere, it it has affected the jet stream patterns. And you will notice, just since that eruption, the jet streams have been doing some crazy things. And the net result is, in the northern hemisphere, last summer there was a crazy amount of heat waves last summer, Europe, North America. Mm -hmm. That is purely because the jet stream has been going different angles because... This volcano put so much water into the stratosphere. Wow. So your crazy summer that you had, you know, the heat waves and the, the massive bushfires in Canada can actually be attributed to, not solely, but this volcano made it even worse than what it would have been. And that moisture is still in the stratosphere right now. It's still affecting the climate. Amazing. Mr. Mackay, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. I really enjoyed this. This was a great experience. Kevin Mackay is a marine geologist with the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research in Wellington, New Zealand. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca. Or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Rosie Fernandez, Amanda Buckowitz, and Sonia Biting. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.